and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Our guest this week, Danica Novgorodov, is a writer, graphic novelist, and illustrator who has written three of her own graphic novels, but her work has received some extra special attention recently. She is the illustrator of the new graphic novel edition of Jason Reynolds' award-winning young adult novel, Long Way Down. She believes she was chosen for the book partly because of her special use of watercolors as a medium for graphic art, which gives the work an ephemeral feel. Besides this project, she's also in the process of writing a graphic novel on climate change, several children's books, as well as essays and illustrating a cookbook with a James Beard award-winning cookbook author. And did I mention that she has a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and that she's working at home during a pandemic? We need to give this artist and mother a medal, or at least a glass of wine and an hour to herself. Danica talks to us about what steps she takes to adapt a book into a graphic novel, how becoming a mother totally changed her thoughts on how to write and illustrate a good children's book, and how the pandemic hastened her family's move away from Brooklyn back to some of her roots in Kentucky. Amy and I have been fans of Jason Reynolds' books for a little while now, so we are very excited to have our guest this week. Danica Novgorodov. She's a graphic novelist, artist, and writer. And she's also a pretty fantastic mom. I think any mom who's just surviving during COVID is a great mom. So Danica, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I had the pleasure of experiencing your illustrations in Jason Reynolds' graphic novel, Long Way Down, a few days ago. And it completely was a different experience from reading the book originally. So I'm really excited to meet you and to learn about your journey to becoming a graphic novelist and an illustrator. So why don't we start off with you just telling us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am in Kentucky in Louisville right now, but I've been living in Brooklyn, New York for the past 16 years or so. And... I have a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I make graphic novels, but I also make all kinds of images and text combinations. So I'm working on children's books and like illustrated essays, and I make drawings just for fun and all kinds of different combinations of like storytelling and visual art. Am, <laughs> am I correct? Did I read that you are, our listeners who live in Louisville, did you graduate from Ballard High School? I did. I went there for three years, sophomore through senior years. So what was your reading life like as a kid? Did you always like to read books? Oh, yeah. I loved books as a kid. I think I was really most into books about kids and nature and like kids who were lost in nature and had to kind of fend for themselves like Hatchet and My Side of the Mountain, Island of the Blue Dolphins, Julie of the Wolves, you know, all those like adventure uh-huh. novels and books about kids and horses. So yeah, I was a big reader as a kid. Interestingly, I didn't read comics 
as a kid. I can't remember really being aware of them. I know that most comic book creators uh, were comic nerds from early on, but I don't know if I w- wasn't exposed to them, but I was mostly into fiction then. And now my reading is extremely varied. I read graphic novels, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, memoir, lots of picture books because I, I have kids. Uh, I listen to audiobooks, um, all kinds of stuff now. But At what point did that start to coincide with art? Like, were you always interested in art? Yeah, I've always made art since I was really little. And then I majored in painting in college and I did a lot of photography as well. And my art was always very narrative. So I would make paintings based on books that I had read or inspired by poetry or even with words incorporated into the images. And I was also writing stories separately from that. So I would write short stories or essays. And I was always a big reader. So when I discovered the graphic novel and I discovered it rather late, um, I was like, wait a minute, maybe this is my thing. Like combining those two passions of mine made a lot of sense. So how old were you when that connection was made? I remember it being pretty soon after I graduated from college or maybe in my senior year of college. I had a friend who was also a painting major who did comics type paintings and made comics for the school newspaper and so I was kind of inspired by him to investigate the medium and then I started reading Chris Ware when I was a senior and having my mind blown a little bit by that so that's around when I got into it. Who's Chris Ware? He's a fairly well-known graphic novelist who makes very dark comics. I'm trying to think how to explain him. I remember the book that I read that I picked up when I was, you know, 21 or 22 was called Jimmy Corrigan. I'm fairly new to the graphic novel world, so I feel like I'm catching up. It's called, uh, I'm Googling it. I don't know this from memory. Jimmy Corrigan, the smartest kid on earth. Yes, that's the one. So, You've published several graphic novels yourself, including A Late Freeze, Slow Storm, and The Undertaking of Lily Chen. So how did these graphic novels come to life? You know, you said you kind of discovered them your senior year in college. Did you start out illustrating for other people or did you start out doing your own graphic novels? I started out doing my own. I traveled to South America. I lived in Ecuador for about half a year after I graduated from college and I wanted to make art while I was there, but it had to be something portable because I was traveling. And so I decided to make a book and I thought, oh, I'll spend a few months making this little book and a story about volcanoes and horses. And it took me maybe two years to finish it. It was like a 300 page little book that I made and it, almost no one has ever seen it because it's totally all over the place. I, didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. But that was the first book I made. And I sort of self-published it. And then A Late Freeze was also self-published. But I made that kind of in collaboration with a band who was doing music based on the same story that that comic was based on. So I made that when I first moved to New York. And then I started working for a publisher called First Second, and they published graphic novels. It was a new imprint of Macmillan when I first moved to New York, and I worked for them as a graphic designer. 
and they ended up publishing my first published graphic novel, which I also wrote called Slow Storm. And that one is set in Kentucky. And it's about a firefighter and a Mexican immigrant who works on a horse farm. And then I was also at the same time, I made comics based on other people's work. And it's it's always something that I fall in love with. Like I, I made some images for Inferno by Dante, and I made images for my favorite book of poetry by Ann Carson. And I made a, a little, a very short story comic based on a play written by a playwright named Ron Fitzgerald that I met in New York. So I've, I've always done both, but I started writing my own early on. So I read The Undertaking of Lily Chen, and one of the things that that I thought about as I was reading it, that is the story of, it starts out with two brothers and this, I guess, like this historic ancient tradition about when young people die and they're not married. So one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is, how did you learn about that? I'm always interested where the ideas come from. Yeah, so I first learned about that tradition I was reading The Economist. I used to subscribe to The Economist magazine, and I read about that tradition in the magazine. And it was sort of about the economy of, or like the trade in dead bodies, basically, which I thought was just, it was just such a crazy story. And it was about this man who had been arrested because he was found robbing a grave to sell the body (laughs) for like a ghost marriage. And I was just like, this is some kind of crazy ghost story in you know that wanted to investigate further right it's like the body snatching you know that they had in victorian england you know to get bodies to do for medical schools but in a different way in china they would because i read that i read your book too if they were unmarried and they didn't have a spouse they couldn't go to the afterworld without a companion so these people robbed the graves of whatever you know if they need a male or a female and then they have sort of a strange wedding service, and then they bury them together. Right. It's so wild, and I thought it would just make such an interesting story. Once you read that Economist article, did you then go down a rabbit hole of doing research, or or was it more like what you imagined? It was a little of both. I definitely tried to do some research, though it was hard because I don't speak the language. Yeah, it was a little bit hard to really get deep into that research about the traditions, but I did travel to China and I traveled to the, you know, the area, the province where this tradition is most commonly practiced. And I did a lot of visual research, took pictures in cemeteries and met some grave diggers, not grave robbers, but grave (laughs) diggers. And I imagined the story as being a mashup between like an American Western and a Chinese traditional tale or ghost story. So it was definitely. Uh, sort of fabricated <laughs> in that way. It was fascinating. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. So you said that you have done some illustrations for various magazines and journals, uh, essays, poetry, things like that. Do you have a preference on writing longer works or doing shorter pieces? No, I wouldn't say I have a preference. It's just all about how much time I want to commit to a project because I know that a graphic novel will usually take me a minimum of two years to draw. And so the story better be really, really important to me if I want to commit to that. There was a time in, after I finished Lily Chen in, in 2014 when I did not, I absolutely did not want to make another graphic novel because I was so burnt out 
I had worked on that book for four years and I was just like, I don't know what I want to make, but I don't want to dive into another huge graphic novel project. So I did some short pieces in the past five years. And then the Jason Reynolds book, Long Way Down, is the first graphic novel I made since then. Well, that's a perfect segue. How did that come about? Because the way I've understood it is that generally, you know, it's not like authors necessarily pick, I guess that can happen. But how did it come about that you were chosen to do that? So my understanding is that Simon and Schuster, the editor and the art director got together with Jason, and they presented him with a bunch of different artworks from different artists and portfolios. And they looked at all the portfolios all together of various people. And I do think that Jason kind of had the final say on who the artist was. So he apparently picked my work. And I think it's because I have all these sort of ghostly images, like both from Lily Chen. And then I had another project that I did of these watercolors that are, I don't know, they just have this sort of ethereal ghostly feel to them. And I think that's what they were looking for, for a style for this graphic novel. So he picked my work. So they approached me and asked me if I would be interested in working on this project. And I had not read Long Way Down. I had read some of Jason's other books and I was just so excited. And I called my agent like six times that day. I I played it really cool. And, you know, with the art director, I was like, yeah, you know, send me the book. I'll take a look. I'll see if if this is something that I have time for. But I was like, oh my God, my dream project has just arrived. Oh my gosh. Well, how long did it take you to do it? You said that Lily Chen took you four years. Yeah, it's hard to say because it was sort of off and on and it got started very slowly, but I think I would say about two years total. I adapted the script myself. I mean, I adapted the novel into a script. That was actually pretty quick. And then getting the character sketches done took forever just to figure out a style and to get them all approved to start working on the book. That took a really long time. But the last stretch of doing all the ink and watercolors, I was just working all day, every day. That was actually during the pandemic. I was trying to finish the book. So that was like an intense period of hard work to get it done. So it's all sort of making sense to me now because I read on the front flap of the book that all of the illustrations that you did were done in watercolor. And then when you said that you were a painting major in college, it's all sort of making sense now because the watercolors do give it sort of an an ethereal look to it. Were all of your other graphic novels also watercolor based? No, I've worked in digital color as well but slow storm my first published graphic novel was done in watercolor and that's really actually the first time I ever used watercolor I never used it in college I always painted in oil paint when I was doing my work in college and then I decided to use watercolor for slow storm because it was set in Kentucky and it had a lot of landscapes and I just imagined the landscape in Kentucky being very lush and green and it was taking place in the spring or the summer when it's just very verdant. So I wanted it to have that kind of watery feel to it. So that's when I started using watercolor and I taught myself how to use it. I didn't really know any techniques and I still can't really use more than like two colors at a time. (laughs) But but since then, I feel like watercolor has sort of become my thing. I really love working with it, especially for graphic novels. Why is that? Why do you like using it for graphic novels? 
I, I don't know. I think digital color gives it a more comic book feel and it can flatten the, the image a little bit, whereas watercolor has just this looseness that I really enjoy. And I'm always looking for ways to break out of the traditional grid of the graphic novel and make it a little more freeform or experimental in the layout and in, in the imagery. So, I mean, it depends on the project. Obviously, the watercolor for a book about ghosts was <laughs> kind of ideal, but it was also a challenge because that whole book takes place in an elevator pretty much. And so I think of my specialty being these big lush landscapes with watercolor and there was none of that in Long Way Down. It was just all in a box. So that was a challenge to make it look visually interesting without having any real background or location to work with except a few cityscapes in the beginning. It does give it a very distinct look. I mean, like I said, I'm fairly new to graphic novels, so maybe Carrie could speak to this more, but it had a very distinct look. I think that I'm sort of drawn to those. I like less the ones that look more what you're talking about, flat or comic booky, I guess. So I really enjoyed the art that you did for A Long Way Down. Thank you. Yeah. So, well, one of the things I was thinking about is like with the watercolors, I wonder if it sort of lends the reader more space for imagination because it is sort of fluid. It's maybe a little bit just not as concrete. And so I guess that would be something that would appeal to me more than, like you said, that digital look. So did you work with Jason? Like, did you all have phone conversations and he told you what he was thinking or was it totally your thought, your idea and how you visualized it? Um, it's funny. I never spoke to Jason a single time or ever met him until our very first book release event that was online. So the book wow. was finished, published, printed, and that was the first time we ever met. So yeah, no, I didn't talk to him at all directly. It was a funny process where I would talk to the art director and she would talk to the editor and the editor would talk to Jason. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then Jason would tell the editor and it would work its way back down to me and I would get the comments or whatever. But they all gave me quite a bit of freedom to do, you know, what I wanted to do with the book and find my own voice and style for the artwork. Well, I was wondering about that. How is the process different when you're doing the writing and illustrating of your own work as opposed to when you're illustrating someone else's vision? Yeah, it's. I think it's a lot harder to write my own because I'm, like many writers, filled with self-doubt and <laughs> terror about writing the story. But it's also, obviously, it's twice as much work to do all the writing and all the art myself. And if I start with a very good text, then I'm already kind of ahead of the game. And I, you know, there's no reason I would ever work on a text that I didn't love somebody else's. If I already have the text set and I love it and it's great, then I can just kind of take off with the images. Whereas if I'm writing it myself, there's just so much more work to do to get it to a place where I feel like, okay, this is finished and ready to draw. So it, yeah, it's more difficult, but I also love writing and get really excited about the writing aspect of it as well. When you're doing your own and and you're doing both the writing and the art. Do you write it all and then do the art or do you ever feel like as you're writing you're visualizing and so then the art as you visualize it changes the story? Yeah, well I try to write it as much as possible before starting the images because drawing just takes me so long that 
like let's say I have to throw out a page that isn't quite working or I have to rewrite this page and then I have to start over like that's an entire day of work that I'm just throwing out because it takes me about a day to to draw one page so I try to do all the writing in advance but it definitely changes a lot as I go and that's that's another part of the challenge of writing for myself is there's a lot of adjusting as I go and realizing that something might not work or getting a new idea as I'm drawing it to add in. I think when I'm writing for myself and I'm visualizing the images, I tend to just write down like a description of the images. It's kind of like writing a screenplay. You know, you write Mm -hmm. down like a visual description and then kind of fill it in later. Sometimes I'll make a little sketch, but I'm really not much of a sketcher. I don't know. It's uh. I, I prefer to just kind of do it in words first. So I, you were I, saying it was sort of like doing a screenplay and you referred to that when talking about doing long way down that you sort of developed a script mm-hmm. for it before you started drawing. Yeah. So how do you do that? What are you looking for? You're just pulling out the parts that speak to you the most or what goes into that? Yeah, when I was working with Jason's book, yeah, I definitely would take all the pieces that I felt were the most powerful, but it was also mostly a process of taking anything that was a visual description and putting that in the images. So I would cut that text and draw it instead. So like if there was a description of what someone looked like, I could cut that text because, you know, I don't want anything redundant. Mm-hmm. in the images and the text or if it was a description of an action that someone's taking like if someone picks something up I'm going to cut that text and just show him picking it up so it was mostly a process of doing that but also yeah just choosing the language that I loved the best and including that as much as possible fascinating you are now working on a graphic novel about climate change with climate journalist Mira Subramanian. Is that a topic that you have a strong interest in? Yes, I have a very strong interest in climate change. And I guess, as we are starting to say now, climate crisis. I've always been interested in climate, or I, I should say I've always been interested in nature. And I had started working on a book proposal for this climate change graphic novel about maybe six or seven years ago at this point. And the the idea for it has changed over time. And I think in the last several years, the general public's conception of climate change has also really shifted. So when I first started thinking about this book, I thought, oh, I'll make a collection of essays by different science writers and climate writers and journalists and different artists. You know, some might be more about climate change and policy, but some might just be about how great nature is and be very poetic. And I just couldn't get anyone interested in that book idea. But like, I just wasn't really getting anywhere. And it was, it just kept getting stuck. And the publishers were, well, you know, it's just going to be too varied. It needs to have a single voice and a, a uniting theme and single visual aesthetic and so then I was like does that mean that one person should write it and one person should draw it and is that person me (laughs) (laughs) and then as I started doing a lot more research about climate change I was like oh wait like this is way more serious than I had any idea about and this is a really different theme for the book 
I need to write this book that's very informative, but also accessible. And the intended audience is young people, so probably middle school to high school age, but probably also adults <laughs> as well. So I started trying to write the book about climate change. And I was getting really stuck on that too, because it was just so heavy and so much just you know, the research involved is just immense. I was like, how can I ever learn enough to write this myself? So that's when I asked Mira to join me in writing it. She's a friend who's a climate journalist at Princeton, and she's a great writer. So fortunately, she agreed to work on it with me. So now we're teaming up to write it. And then, of course, I'm going to draw it. But we're still in the writing phase for that. Um, is, is this more of like a fictional story or it's, no, it's like more nonfiction, I mean? Yeah, it's nonfiction, and the focus is young climate activists. So we're going to profile four different young climate activists who have made a huge difference in recent years, including Greta Thunberg, and sort of tell their personal stories and through that tell the story of what is climate change and what are the scientific facts behind it, but also give a personal story to it so that it's also interesting and entertaining and not just like a pile of facts. Yeah. In your experiences, you know, you've talked about being able to create art for things that, you know, like Jason's story, that you love the story or with the climate change graphic novel, you have a passionate interest about it. Have you ever had to just, you know, for paying the bills, work on things that <laughs> that you're like, this is just work? And how does that affect the creative process for you? Yeah, for sure. I've well, you know, I do graphic design as well. So just for money, I've been doing for the last few years, PowerPoint design for marketing research. You know, it's totally unrelated <laughs> to books and, and creative writing, but that pays the bills. And in the past, I've done all kinds of things. It wasn't until very recently that I was able to ever say no to anybody. <laughs> A lot of it was really fun, but, you know, I've done posters for music festivals or, or album designs and I've taught art classes and art lessons and I've done all kinds of different graphic design book design I, there's all kinds of things I've done like transcriptions for people's interviews <laughs> all kinds of things that I had to do just make money as a freelancer but yeah. I, I don't know I, I think for myself you know even though we've talked to different authors and people who are very committed to books and reading I think there's still even for myself there's kind of like this veil that I put over you know like they're a writer they work in literature and so I think it's helpful just to this constant reminder that there are these pockets of really awesome stuff that writers and graphic novelists and illustrators do, but there's also a certain amount of real life that not every minute is the call from the agent about yeah. doing Jason's book. Like not every second is like those moments. Oh yeah. I, I guess it's because I love books and literature. And so I sort of have this fantasy about what it's like. Well, you're working on a couple of children's books as well. Is the process for you different if your audience is children? Yeah, you know, the art style has to be so different. And I was surprised at how different it was. When I first started working on children's books, I thought that my graphic novel style would just easily transfer over. And it's really taken me several years to find a visual voice that works for kids' books. And the writing is also very hard. Like, I know people will look at a children's book and be like, this is so simple. Anyone could write that. 
but it's so hard. It's, you, you can't have a single word out of place or, you know, a single wrong word because there's so few words in it. It's like every word is so precious. So it's, it's actually very difficult to make a good children's book. And I, in my artwork, I tend to be too realistic and dependent on photo reference, whereas kids' books generally are more stylized. And so once I figured out how to simplify and loosen my style, it, it became really fun to make children's books. I mean, I'm still working on it and trying to find a style for myself. But that sense of the artist really having fun in a picture book comes through on the page, I think. Well, and you are a mother of young children yourself, so... Does that make you look at it a little bit differently than, you know, before you had a one-year-old and a three-year-old? I read picture books for a couple years before I had kids because that's when I started wanting to make children's books. So I was reading a lot of picture books, but like I had never read them with kids before. And so it's a really different experience and has definitely changed my process in making it, at least in the artwork side of it. It's like you don't realize that when you have kids and you're reading picture books, some of these you are going to read so many times that you are, you're sick to death of them. And like, I never really thought about it until right the second. But when I think about reading picture books to my kids, my kids were fine. But for me as an adult, it was very helpful when the illustrations were in some ways kind of multi-leveled or, or they sort right. of filled a need for the adult in the room, I guess. They were working on different levels. And I don't know that I've ever formulated that thought in my own head until right this minute. And my kids are very young still, so they're not super verbal yet. And on, on a lot of the picture books I read, I'm like, too many words, too many words. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so when I'm writing for kids, I'm like, all right, we have to pare this down to what is the most essential single sentence on this page. <laughs> And with such young children, how are you doing with the quarantine and having them home and being able to get work done? Yeah, it's definitely been a lot harder. But I mean, it's just been generally harder since having kids to work. But when we were in Brooklyn, they were in daycare. So I would have a big chunk of the day quiet and (laughs) to be by myself. And now they're home. We do have a babysitter. So that's been enormously helpful and wonderful. But they are still like in the house and coming and going. And I don't get a good chunk of quiet alone time to really dive in. So I think it's been okay for my visual art, but I have not been able to write, honestly, since the pandemic started. Because for writing, I feel like you need several hours to really sink into a project and think clearly. And so that's been kind of hard. Yeah. And now you're back in Louisville. And, you know, a lot of people might think if, if you're living in New York, that's close to all of the major publishers. And Louisville is not close to those things. So what brought you back? Mm-hmm. And how do you anticipate it's going to affect your work, if at all? Yeah, well, so I actually only lived in Louisville for three years during high school. But I always say I'm from here because my parents live here. So I come back a lot. And now I've been in New York for 16 years. So it's it's like, where am I really from? <laughs> what happened was we were supposed to come here for spring break in March in 2020. So right when the pandemic started and my husband's a teacher. So we came for a spring break for, and we were supposed to stay for a week. And then we just ended up never leaving <laughs> because we were like, <laughs> we barely survived that first week and a half of 
pandemic in New York City because we have a nice apartment, but for four people and it's like a two bedroom and my studio is in one of the bedrooms and it was just really impossible. It was, I was freaking out and having a panic attack every day. So we just were like, you know what, we can't go back right now. So we just stayed and we had been intending to move eventually anyway, but this really just sped it up a little bit. So wow. Since then. I didn't expect that it was going to be like, they came and they got stuck. <laughs> they just. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we were planning to move anyway. And I think we had settled on Louisville because my parents are here and my sister's nearby and the cost of living is so much better here. And, and we were really starting to outgrow our space and we really, really couldn't afford daycare for two kids in New York. So it was really time to leave anyway, but this just helped it along. And I really, I miss my friends and I miss the art and the museums because I would go to the museums all the time for inspiration but it's been really nice to be in Louisville to have more space to have my own studio because I had my studio was partly a baby's bedroom (laughs) by the time we left and couldn't really work in there when I all, all the time when I wanted to being near nature and having access to hiking has been really good for my brain space I've been trying to go for a monthly solo hike and that's been really nice for like trying to think through po- projects or have creative free time. <laughs> well, and so. and too, I think the pandemic has sort of <laughs> forced everybody to realize how much we can really do from far away. You know, I mean, there's still lots of things that you need to be in person for, but there's also a big bulk of things that people can easily do remotely. One great thing is that I have a writing group of women that we get together once a month and we exchange writing. So we critique one or two people's work each month. And I've been able to continue doing that even after leaving New York, since everyone is doing it remotely now. Right. So that's been kind of nice. Well, thank you so much for telling us about your work, your own graphic novels and your work on Long Way Down. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. So we are back with Danica and with Carrie. And Carrie, it has been a few weeks since we've done an episode, and I want to hear about what you're reading. So it's kind of funny that the book I picked that we have Danica on here, who's a a graphic novelist, several years ago, I was at The Great Escape, which is a like a comic book shop on Bardstown Road. And I saw a book, the title stood out to me. And My dad has been having some health problems and there are few things as unpleasant as seeing your parents going through that whole unpleasant aging process. So for some reason, this book popped into my head again. Like I hadn't read it. I just saw the title however many years ago at The Great Escape. Well, I started looking this book up and I found it. And so I kind of went into a deep dive a little bit with this writer and graphic novelist. The book is called, Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? And it's a memoir by Roz Chast. And she is an illustrator and a, I guess, a graphic novelist. Her work has been seen in The New Yorker. And so this book, it's a graphic novel and it's about her parents. They lived well into their 90s, but it was about the slow decline 
of her parents and her trying to raise her family and take care of her parents and the whole family dynamic. And I loved, loved this book. I think if you are at a point in your life where your parents are getting older and you're like, what is this going to be like? What's going to happen? What could happen? I mean, this just hits on a lot of those feelings. It's not like this super feel good book. It's kind of sad. And, but it's also makes you feel not so alone in going through that process, which, you know, most people go through. Most people have to watch their parents get older and, and even if they're in good health and her parents for a very long time, were in very good health, but you know, your body just gets old and tired. So I highly, highly recommend this book. I finished it like super quick. I couldn't put it down. You know, the illustrations are fantastic, funny and sad and, and bittersweet. So highly recommend. And does she have more? I thought I saw in your Goodreads that you might have read a couple. Did you? She does. She has a, it's a picture book for adults and it's called What I Hate from A to Z. That's a picture book, but it was funny. And I just love the title, What I Hate from A to Z. And I totally hate a lot of those same things. But in that book, she talks about how she has anxiety. And so she would, like a lot of people, laying in bed stewing over things. And she finally decided she was going to make an alphabetical list of all the things that cause her anxiety. So I recommend that one too. (laughs) I think you could write that book. I feel like I could. I would have to do the alphabet multiple times, though. You know, there would be like volume one, volume two. So, well, Danica, do you have any books that you've been reading lately? This question always makes me so nervous because there are so many good books. So it's hard for me to choose just one. So I might mention a couple to have like a really bad memory. So if you ask me what I read last month, I'm like, I have to go look at the list that I wrote down what I wrote. So there's a couple books I've been revisiting that I read. They're not new, but I've been revisiting them because they're about Alexander von Humboldt. And he was a German explorer, botanist, geologist, philosopher, and writer born in 1769. So the same year as Napoleon. And he traveled to South America in 1800, and he spent five years collecting specimens of plants and rocks and other things and making maps and writing about indigenous cultures and climbing volcanoes. So I'm actually working on a picture book about him for little kids. Oh, wow. I've been reading a bunch of adult books about him. (laughs) So the one I've been looking at that came out, I think maybe like five or six years ago, it's called The Invention of Nature. And the subtitle is Alexander von Humboldt's New World. And it's by Andrea Wolfe. And it's just an incredible biography of him. And it tells his story and the story of his era in like a really entertaining, beautiful, detailed way. And she talks about how he was one of the earliest scientists to report on human-made climate change. And he was an abolitionist. And she writes about his personal life and all his internal conflicts and contradictions. I really love that book. And then there's another book called The Passage to Cosmos, Alexander von Humboldt and the Shaping of America, which is by Laura Dasso Walls. And it's a little bit denser and less well-known than the Andrea Wolf book, but it shows an incredible web of influence that Humboldt had on connecting the sciences and the arts and writing about the universe in a very poetic and accessible way. And he's paved the way for thinkers like Emerson, Thoreau, Darwin, John Muir, Walt Whitman. He influenced Thomas Jefferson and Simon Bolivar, who's the 
liberator of South America. So he was like extremely influential. So these two books I really enjoyed about him. So you said that you're starting to write a children's book based on his life. So how do you take these, which sound like, I mean, I don't know, maybe they're very short, you know, light reading, but sound like they're kind of big and heavy reading and condense it down to a child level? Yeah, it's really hard. But what I did was I tried to focus on his volcano explorations because I'm kind of obsessed with volcanoes as well. So I kind of made the theme of it, him climbing these volcanoes and then discovering how all of life is interconnected. And it's really the theme of the other books as well as just all this interconnectedness between science and art, between people, between how what we do to nature changes the landscape and how different ecosystems are connected. So that's kind of what I'm trying to distill into 32 pages with images. Wow. Wow. That sounds super hard. That volcano, though, that's definitely going to appeal to kids. For sure. And and probably 47-year-old women, too. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's one other book that I'm revisiting, which came out a little while ago as well, which is Claudia Rankin's Citizen. And I'm just really interested in how she combines text and images in unconventional ways. And her writing is just so powerful. So... That's just another one that I think everyone should read. Is that essays? It's sort of a combination between essays and poetry. And it's about race and America. (laughs) And and that one is actually much shorter than the other two I mentioned. (laughs) It's more of like a poetry book, but it's, it's really powerful. Okay. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? So I just finished a book called Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier, and this is a debut novel. It came out in 2020, and a few weeks ago, we were talking about where the cutoff for YA literature is, and this book, I think, is one that sort of straddles the line a bit. This book wasn't at all what I expected. So when I read the blurb about it, it was described as a funny coming-of-age story about an 18-year-old pregnant pizza delivery girl. So I was intrigued by it. But after I read it, I found it much more dark. I mean, maybe tragically funny might be a better word, but there definitely is a quirky premise to it that really made me think. But the most basic storyline is that Pizza Girl is 18, she's pregnant, and she becomes obsessed with one of the people that she delivers pizzas to. So the pizza delivery girl has a Korean mother who immigrated to the U.S. and an American father, and her father dies several months before the book begins, and she meets her soon-to-be boyfriend, Billy, at a grief support group. Both of his parents died in a car accident, so he comes to live with her and her mom, and she gets pregnant. And I would describe her as being ambivalent about being pregnant. She's pretty ambivalent about life in general. She has no idea what she wants to do in the future. She doesn't even really seem to think too much about the future. She's the epitome of that word ennui. So the book is primarily a character study about the pizza girl. And she's a very complicated character. In fact, I am still trying to process all the layers of this story, I think, because when I was trying to think about what I wanted to say about this book, my thoughts were all over the place. But she has very complicated feelings about her father, who was an alcoholic and oftentimes didn't treat Pizza Girl and her mother well. And Pizza Girl worries that she's going to turn out to be like him. She loves her mother, but in some ways she pities her mother. Her boyfriend, Billy, loves her and she cares for him in a way, but not in the same way that he feels for her. 
the funniest parts of the book were when she describes the strange people that she delivers pizzas to. And this is where we meet Jenny Hauser. And she is a woman in her late 30s who has a little boy and they order pizza every Wednesday and the pizza girl becomes obsessed with her. And when I say obsessed, I mean almost like stalking her. The book has a great opening line. Her name was Jenny Hauser and every Wednesday I put pickles on her pizza. <laughs> and it takes several weeks for the pizza girl to become obsessed I think maybe she becomes obsessed because Jenny Hauser shows her some attention. Although Pizza Girl's mother and her boyfriend also want to show her attention, but she kind of turns them away. But then there's the possibility that Pizza Girl's attracted to her because Pizza Girl seems to be struggling somewhat with her sexuality. But there's also the fact that Pizza Girl's mother is about the same age as Jenny Hauser, 39. So there could be a complex mingling in her mind between the two. And then there are her feelings of abstraction about her pregnancy. She has a hard time visualizing the baby as a person until closer to the end. Something happens closer to the end of the book that really helps distill all of this for her more clearly. But there's definitely some LGBTQ issues and mental illness represented in this book, as well as that feeling that a lot of young people have of having no idea where you want to go in your life or do in your life as a young person. And even though it wasn't all that I was expecting, it still had me thinking about it and what it all means. I guess sometimes people refer to this as having a long tail. I'd love to see what a psychologist's analysis of Pizza Girl would be. I originally gave this three stars on Goodreads because I think it wasn't what I was expecting. I was expecting something much more light and funny, but the more I thought about it, I bumped it up to four stars because there are just so many levels to Pizza Girl. So is that her name? Pizza girl? Like, is that how... That's is how that she is referred to in the whole book. Now, you do eventually find oh. out her name, but it's like on the very last page. That's so she... Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It, in some ways, it seems kind of simple, but it really has lots of layers to it. And I mean, it, I'm just still thinking about it and what it all means. Yeah, that's super interesting. I yeah. might have to add that one to my list. I've already <laughs> added the invention of nature and citizen to my list. So... <laughs> I think you I might like I, it, Carrie, Carrie, because you like things that are, you know. A little weird. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a little weird. Okay. Well, very good. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Danica her top five. We are back with Danica Novgorodov. So question number one, you played pickup soccer when you lived in Brooklyn with a group of mostly men from all over the world. How did you get interested in soccer and what is the top best thing about playing in those games? Oh, how did I get interested? Well, I just started playing in a, a co-ed rec league in New York and I was just terrible. I had never played in school. Well, I played once in fifth grade, but you know, like I was just starting as an adult, so I was really bad and I don't know why I stuck with it and I'm so glad I did, but I would just go every week and play and just feel so humiliated. <laughs> and then I would go back and do it again the following week. And eventually I found this group that it was a loosely organized pickup game. We would play at 7.30 in the morning. So it was a lot of freelancers and artists and people without nine to five jobs. And we would play in all weather from totally freezing sub-zero to 90 degree August weather. 
And it was great because I met so many people that I otherwise would never have met or run into people from all over the world. There were people from Yemen and Argentina and Ghana and, you know, just everywhere. And I, I made some really close friends through that group. And it was great because we could socialize while doing a thing that we all loved, which was just getting outside and, you know, moving our bodies and playing team sport. So it was really fun. So since you had never really played soccer, what, like, was it a dare? What, what was it that made you go, I think I'll do this? I think I had always wanted to play soccer. And then I had a friend from Kentucky who was playing on a, in a league. And so I talked to him and he was like, yeah, we need some women on our team, like come out and play. So that's, I don't know what possessed me to try it at first. <laughs> I did something like that maybe 10 years ago. It was an adult co-ed league and it, I went and played like one Sunday and that was it. I also tried a kickball league. That was a disaster. That was a disaster because at that point my, my kids were old enough. I think my middle son was maybe 10, you know, enough that he'd played a lot of kickball himself and he just stood on the sidelines and made fun of me. <laughs> this good. Yeah. Playing soccer was so funny because with my pickup group, it was like kids who were late teens all the way to dudes in their 60s. So we had a really varied group. And, you know, of course, the, the younger kids could just like run circles around us. And I was yeah. like sort of somewhere in the middle. Um, and I was like really fast, but had no ball handling skills whatsoever. So I yeah. would just kind of run up and down the field. So question number two, you were a marathon and a triathlon runner, but you say that you've lost that competitive drive. So what was the top best thing about not running or being as competitive? And Carrie and I asked this as two people who will only run if we're chased. <laughs> well, I mean, I am still running and I'm, I run, you know, maybe three or four or five times a week, but now I'm running with a double stroller <laughs> instead <laughs> of competitively. So I love that you ask what's the best thing about not competing because most people will be like, what have you lost? <laughs> I'm yeah. not doing that anymore. Um, I think that it's good for me because there's just so many have to's and should's that I can drop from that. You know, I don't have to do a certain workout on a certain day of the week every day. And if I don't exercise for a day now, it's fine, even though I usually do for my own mental well-being. But I just don't have the time for it. And I have other priorities now that are just so much more important to me than getting out and winning in a race. <laughs> it's just not as important anymore. My husband ran a marathon one time and he ran it and he goes, okay, never again. I can mark that off my bucket list. I never want to do that again. But then there are people who like a sister-in-law of mine who have run marathons, have done Ironmans. And I don't know if it's the endorphins, but like she just wants to keep doing them, which I totally don't understand <laughs> just because that's, that doesn't sound fun to me, but it seems like there's two groups of people. So were you one of those who like just really wanted to keep doing them? Yeah, I was pretty into it for a few years and I was really into racing and I did two, almost three marathons. The one marathon got canceled because it was in the middle of Hurricane Sandy in New York. So that, got, or it was right after. So that got canceled, but I was really competitive for a few years. And yeah, it is the endorphins. And like, if you just feel so good when you're in top shape, you know, you feel good about yourself and, but you know, now that I'm getting older, I can kind of like scale that back a little bit and still feel good. <laughs> yeah. 
I scaled myself way back. I finally decided, I was like, you know, I would like to do now what I will still hopefully be able to do when I'm like 80. And that's just walk. So I was going to say, Amy, there's probably that other group, which would be me, that has very low expectations. And like, <laughs> All right. Question three. My daughter and I are hoping to go to Ecuador for a senior trip in 2022. You mentioned that you lived there for six months. So what was the top most amazing place you visited when you lived there? So I went on a few kind of intense treks. I had a guide once, like a mountaineering guide. He said to us, there are trips that are fun and then they're fun to tell about later. (laughs) And there are trips that are not fun, but make a good story later. And then there are trips that are not fun and do not make a good story. (laughs) And he was like, this trip we're about to go on will be the second type. It's not going to be that fun when you're doing it, but it'll make a good story later. And that's kind of the type of expedition that I like to do because... They're just, so this might not be for you, but, <laughs> yeah. like a senior trip. But for me, it, like I went on a week long trek into the rainforest with a guide who was an indigenous elder, and it was very physically challenging. There were just mosquitoes and torrential rains and floodings and herds of wild boars, and it was amazing. But it was at the time I was like, oh my god, am I going to survive this? But I just I learned so much from him, and it was so inspiring. And I wrote a whole novel after that about a girl being lost in the jungle so it was really creatively inspiring to me i am going to watch out for wild boars although i don't <laughs> really anticipate i mean there's going to be a group of high schoolers so yeah, <laughs> i'm fairly run. certain that they're not going to take them anywhere near where they could run into wild boars right. <laughs> So question number four, you're working on a cookbook in collaboration with J.J. Johnson, a James Beard Foundation book award-winning chef. I assume you must be doing illustrations for that. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm also writing it. So I'm, he's he's writing all the recipes, of course, but I am writing the essays and kind of the introduction and stuff about the history of rice and migration of rice. And yeah, it's a book about rice. Oh, okay. (laughs) doing a lot of the research and I'm interviewing JJ and then writing a lot of the text in the book. So what is your top food that you like to make and why? And is it rice? (laughs) (laughs) I do love rice. It is one of my top foods. And I just made a jollof rice, which is a West African rice dish. Um, But I'm actually not a great cook myself. I mean, I can cook, but I like recipes. I'm not super creative in the kitchen. But one thing I am trying to really work on is to learn to cook my dad's stir fry because he's half Chinese and he makes a great, really, really great stir fry. But it's, he's hard to learn from because he's like, you know, you just put a little of this and a little oh. of that. And so I'm trying to learn that right now. So I, I have to ask you this, since you're collaborating on a cookbook. So how do you feel about online recipes? Like, do you just want the recipe or do you want to read all the background to the recipe? Do you have oh, strong no. feelings about that? I don't have strong feelings. I'm sure someone wants to read all that, but I definitely do not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She's on my team. I don't, have, I don't have time for it. I'm just like, jump to recipe. <laughs> But again, that's that's me not being like super immersed in the cooking culture. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Last question. Danica's like, thank goodness. All right. In the bio, at the back of several of your books, among many other things, you are described as a horse wrangler. Tell us a little bit about this and what is one of the top most interesting horse stories you have from your personal experience? Yeah. So I just, in my last book, in a long way down, I ended up taking that off of my resume because I haven't actually ridden a horse for a few years now since... (laughs) I've been living in New York and not traveling as much, but I did work for a few summers in Colorado at a kid's camp as the horse wrangler. So I would just take care of the horses and bring them in and out of the pasture and feed them and all that kind of stuff. And I worked for Sally Mann, who is one of the most amazing photographers. I worked for her for a couple of summers and I worked with her horses. And so I guess the story I would tell is that she had a four-year-old mare who had never been ridden and so we were trying to train this horse and get her ready to be ridden for the first time and we would we spent I don't know how long I would I want to say months but maybe it was a month or two taking her and and working with her in the round pen and touching her back and picking up her feet and like you know all the things that you do to get a horse comfortable with being touched all over and put pressure on and everything and then it came time to like get on her back for the first time and I was like I don't Sally, I don't have health insurance. Like, I don't know if I can do this. Like, I'm a little nervous here. And she was like, I'll do it. And, she, you know, she's like my mom's age. And so she got on the horse and the horse bucked for like minutes, which feels like days when you're watching a horse just oh go nuts. I had never seen this before. And it was insane. And Sally held on. She was just like rodeo riding. For like several minutes and she, I was just so terrified that she was going to land on the fence and break her back or something, but she eventually slid off the back gracefully. It was crazy, but I felt like such a wuss that I I was not brave enough to get on that horse, but I was like, you know, I don't think this is a good idea for me. (laughs) So did that horse ever get broken? Broken in? Sally sent the horse to a trainer and the trainer was like, "Uh uh-uh, this horse is not. (laughs) Really? They eventually gave up on her, on training her. I don't know what happened to her after that. Sally gave up on training her to ride. And Now, when you lived in Kentucky, when you were in high school, did you work with horses there? Yeah, I rode horses competitively in high school and I did um, eventing. So dressage, jumping and mm-hmm. cross country jumping. And that was a huge part of my life for quite a while. But then living in New York, it's just not not really possible unless you're a billionaire or something. Now that you're back in Kentucky, do you think you're going to take up horseback riding again? I I had been thinking about it and I, I was kind of excited about that idea. But so far, it's like I can't hardly leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really hard when you have little kids, but I haven't even like taken them to, to go to the horse farm and see the horses yet. But yeah, it's definitely on my list of things to do. And I would love eventually... My parents just came over and dropped off my saddles from when I was in high school. They were like, this is yours now that you have a house to live in. <laughs> I was like, all right. Well. You've, they've been storing it long enough. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we are cleaning out our basement now. <laughs> well, Danica, it has been so fun getting to chat with you and, and learn about your work and some of your interesting experiences through your life. We're so glad that you agreed to talk with us. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. This is great. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. 
Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.